We'll consider our introduction, and then we want to talk about the goal of good church government, and then the method, and then the leadership. Victor Hugo is probably best known for his epic tale of Jean Valjean and Les Miserables. But the last novel that he wrote is entitled 93, set in the year 1793. It's a saga of a counter-revolutionary revolt during the French Revolution. And in one episode, a French royalist ship is on the high seas and encounters a violent storm. Suddenly, there's a loud crash heard below the deck. That can only mean one thing. A cannon has come loose from the breaching rope with which it was secured. That's a bad thing. It's crashing against the sides of the ship with every roll of the waves. And if somebody doesn't go down and batten down the cannon, the ship will be destroyed. So one brave sailor went below, secured the cannon, was immediately decorated with a medal for bravery, and then executed without trial for having allowed the cannon to come loose in the first place. Such was justice during the Revolution. But by analogy, here is the gospel ship sailing through troubled waters. The sailors are battling fierce storms that threaten to blow the ship off course. But these external tempests are not the greatest threat to the church. It's the loose cannon banging around down in the heart of the vessel. There is the greater threat. The cannon of fear, or bitterness, or gossip, or lust, or greed, unforgiveness, or hypocrisy. So today in our study, we come to a very important part of the Bible in dealing with loose cannons, Matthew 18. In our weekly Bible study, we have learned that true greatness requires that we become as little children. And that's the part I started reading in the first verse of Matthew 18. And we're going to see that Jesus uses that illustration to refer to hard attitudes, faith, humility, submission to authority. But the interesting thing is that Matthew uses another analogy when we get to verse 15, and we see that God's children in the church are disciplined in a very like manner as sons and daughters, as little children. And we're going to look at that some today. It's the same remedy. Now, Old Testament believers were taught that God was a loving Heavenly Father. And as a loving Heavenly Father, He would discipline those whom He loves. Proverbs 3, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And they were also taught that if an earthly father did not discipline his son, it meant not only that he didn't love him, but it was evidence that he hated him. Proverbs 13:24, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. But wait. Didn't that come out of the Old Testament when God was mad at everybody? Well, in the New Testament, those same verses are quoted, Hebrews 12.5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint 
when you are reproved by Him. Some translations say the chastening of the Lord. It's the same thing. Proverbs 6.23, the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. This is just the way we live. As little children, if we get off course and we're doing the wrong thing, we are disciplined for that, and that's how we learn. The rest of that passage, beginning in verse 6, reads as this. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He chastens every son whom He receives. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This last verse reminds us of why parents don't discipline their children. It's painful for the parent, and it's painful for the child. Permissiveness is so much easier, but God calls that hatred instead of love. Now, what about discipline in the church? If such a thing were even mentioned, many would shout the alarm of legalism, judging others, narrow-mindedness, hypocrisy, un-Americanism, or bigotry, and many would like to attend a church where church discipline is not practiced just in case something goes wrong there. Alexander Strzok, in his definitive work on biblical eldership, observes that no part of Christian ministry is more difficult than investigating and disciplining sin. But the Scriptures clearly indicate that we must deal with sin. It is required in the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Carl Lacey, in his book, Guide to Church Discipline, reminds us that church discipline is God's loving plan for restoring sinning saints. Evangelism ministers to those outside the church who are in the bondage of sin. Congregational discipline ministers to those who are within the church who are in bondage of sin. The Belgic Confession, excuse me, let me give you the definition that we would use today for church discipline. Church discipline refers to the confrontive and corrective measures taken by an individual church leaders, or the congregation regarding a matter of sin in the life of the believer. And then from the Belgic Confession of 1561, we see three marks of a true church. The preaching of pure doctrine, the administering of the ordinances, including the Lord's Supper, in which we'll participate today, and baptism, and then the exercising of church discipline. What would be the purpose of church discipline? 
reconciliation and restoration would be first. And in a, by way of explanation, this would be reconciliation with God and with others, accomplished through true repentance. And then the restoration of the offender to righteous living and good standing in the church. That is the goal toward which we would be working with regard to good church government. Now there's another purpose to purge out the old leaven, that's sin, keep others from being contaminated by sin, then to preserve holiness in the church and uphold the honor and reputation of the Lord, and to cause others to fear God and the dreadful consequences of sin. We don't have a study guide this morning, but all of this will be on the internet in case you want to look back at it. The Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646, has this to say, Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, for deferring others from the like offenses, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel, and for preventing the wrath of God, which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer His covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Well, we have a procedure here whereby we don't have to get to the notorious and obstinate offenders unless someone just refuses to hear correction. One of the worst situations in the life of a church would be where you have the usual storms of heathen culture and temptation and false teaching and compromise, everything that's blowing on the outside, but then to discover that there is sin down in the heart of that old vessel. A cannon is banging the sides off the gospel ship. We can't have that because we know that if that's the case then the gospel ship is liable to sink into the dark waters of religious irrelevance because we have a world that's watching us and watching what we say about things, but really watching what we do with regard to what has been said. Nobody wants to go below and confront sin because you can get hurt down there with a loose cannon banging around. And some folks would say something like, well, live and let live, uh, boys will be boys, or judge not that you be not judged. And that particular statement made by Jesus has been misinterpreted and misapplied to justify every kind of sin and false teaching that you could possibly imagine. What did that mean, judge not that you be not judged, when Christ said that part of the Beatitudes? Well, first of all, it meant that don't start doing any judging of anything until you get the log out of your own eye. And then it meant don't judge non-Christians by Christian standards. What could you expect from them? And then I think it meant don't judge other Christians by your own personal convictions, but rather by biblical standards if a judgment has to be made. You might have some pretty good convictions that you think would be biblical convictions, but we've got to be sure that we use the Scripture as the standard for all judgment. 
Some would even want to reward the sinner so that they could seen and be seen as being loving and compassionate. It's a fine line that we need to walk, and we'll get some insight on that from the passage in Matthew 18. Now, what is the goal of good church government? It's not just to confront sin. It's not just to try to get people to heaven on their dying day. It's to try to get heaven down into the people so that people can experience the life that God has called us to live and that others can see that life being lived out in the life of a Christian. For many, being saved from the penalty of sin is enough. Once saved, always saved on my way to heaven. But if you start thinking about being saved from the power and practice of sin, oh, that's out of the question because it requires getting involved to deal with sin. And that's unpleasant and dangerous business, as some of you would know. Christ came to this earth to make us more than conquerors now, not just to live in glory someday. And there are many ways in which we can make eternal investments in our lives right now. And the purpose of good church government would be to help Christians live that victorious Christian life and fulfill the purposes for which God has established the church. So the goal of good church government, holiness, purity, sound doctrine, unity, peace, harmony. Well, we read that and we say, man, if I could be like in a church like that, there wouldn't be any problems. Well, it's just one problem. It is I. Nobody's perfect in any church. But these are the goals for which we strive and for which the government of the church would be pressing. Well, here are several equations that would help us define our responsibility in the body. Biblical teaching plus daily living equals holiness. But biblical teaching minus daily living minus the teaching in our daily lives, equals hypocrisy. And there are many people watching to see what the church folks are going to say. And then when they hear what they're going to say, they want to see if what they're going to do and the way they live matches what they say. In many churches, sin is prohibited, prohibited in principle by preaching from the pulpit. But the same sin may be permitted in the lives of the parishioners. If we're going to preach it, we have to be living it. And if we're going to be living it in the church, we have to be correcting it when we get off course. If not, instead of purity in the church, we'll have poverty in the church, spiritual poverty. And we understand that God loves to use cleansed vessels for His work. In 2 Timothy 2, we are reminded that in a large house, there are not only articles of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do every good work. And that would be our goal in good church government. 
to help folks to be cleansed from those latter things and an instrument for noble purposes. Well, it's rare in many churches to find those who would be willing to confront sin. But it is not rare to find those who would be willing to talk about it, even the sin and the person who is committing the sin. So we see that sin plus biblical confrontation equals cleansing of the sin and true love toward the sinner. But sin plus gossip equals enjoyment of sin and hatred toward the sinner. Well, why would people gossip? Well, there would be maybe a lot of reasons given, but I don't suppose there would be so much gossip going on in the world if there weren't some enjoyment to be derived from that. I think about the Pharisees. The Pharisee would say, Ooh, that's terrible. I'm glad that's not me. Grace would say, That could be me, except for God's grace. Humility would say, that is me, right down in here. Maybe we should say, that is I, to be grammatically correct. I'm just a bad sinner in my heart. And I need to be careful. And I need to take heed to the warnings that were given by Alistair Begg in the previous hour. Now we come to the method. And this is where we pick up in Matthew 18, 15. We've seen that it's essential to confront sin in the church. Who would be responsible for confronting sin in the church? All hands on deck. Because if you're old enough to carry on a conversation and you have a moral conscience, then you would be one of the ones responsible for confronting sin in the church. Step one. This is a private confrontation. Matthew 18:15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, some manuscripts have if your brother sins against you. The New American Standard, for instance, eliminates that phrase. But in a sense, if someone is sinning within the body of Christ, it's going to affect everyone. As we see, Achan's sin affected the entire nation in his day until that sin was confessed and uh, was tended to. So this means that the offended party or someone who sees that there is sin should go privately to the offender. Now, if it's been an offense against me, I can't wait for an apology because an apology may never come. But yet it's my job to go to that person in the beginning. The goal is not to try to win the argument, but to win a brother. The instruction to go and reprove comes from Leviticus 19.17. Sometimes uh, an individual might need some help from the elders if this is a very awkward situation. But you see, our problem is every situation is an awkward situation. So we just have to pray it through and we have to follow what the Scripture says. When a brother is willing to explain his words or conduct, it may come to light that the difficulty was just a misunderstanding. 
How many of you have seen where something was settled through good communication? Well, that's what we're talking about in step one. The offender may acknowledge his offense and ask forgiveness. That would be nice. He may understand that ongoing conflict would damage the body of Christ. And we don't want that. In the case of children, the mother confronts the child in private, not in Walmart. And now we go to step two. This is a semi-private step. Matthew 18, 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The law of Moses required two or three witnesses, Deuteronomy 19:15. Well, what would that accomplish, step two? Taking others along for a clear testimony may encourage the offender to listen to them and to be reconciled. And that would be our goal. Or, if that's not the case, the others at least will be witnesses of the offender's response, whatever it may be. And third, witnesses should be persons of unquestionable character and have good understanding of the Bible. And then the problem at hand should be a matter of real sin, not a difference of opinion. Not a longhorn in trouble with an Aggie who can't decide who's going to win the game or something of that nature. This has to be something real. More witnesses add weight to the rebuke. If you took four or five people with you, that might add some leverage if these people know and understand the truth. And we're going to talk about that. Back in the home, if the child is not repentant, what does mom do? She calls in a witness, dad, when he gets home from work. He will help to make known the truth in this situation. Now, step three, we come to a public step in the first part of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that's the witnesses that you take with you, tell it to the church. This is the ecclesia. This is the local body or congregation. This is the church right here. We're not talking about a committee or a council or a synod or the inquisition, but we're talking about the local church. Tell it to the local church. It'd be wise probably to tell it to the elders before you announce it to the congregation or start a grapevine campaign. Everything must be done properly and in an orderly manner. But it is clear that the entire congregation is responsible for bringing an offender back to holiness. Now, what kind of sin should be told publicly in the church? Well, sin that gets that far, if it cannot be resolved in a private or small group setting, according to what we've just read here in Matthew 18. Sin that involves the congregational or public trust, such as embezzlement or abuse or immorality. And then sin that involves the leadership of the church. And that's the reason we ask you to pray for your elders, your leaders, all the time, and deacons. James 3.3, 3, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, what kind of sins 
do we deal with in the church? There are a number of things, in fact a wide variety, mentioned in the New Testament. Laziness, false teaching, dishonesty or cheating, incest, divisiveness, blasphemy, adultery, slander, greed, drunkenness, fornication, and adultery. Now we might categorize some of those sins that require discipline. Discipline for heresy protects the church in doctrine. Discipline for divisiveness protects the church in unity. Discipline for scandal protects the church in purity and reputation. Discipline for irreconcilable interpersonal relationships protects the church in peace and honor. And that would be our goal, not to punish someone with some public announcement of something that they did or something they refused to stop doing, but it would be to protect the church as the Scripture tells us. So the motive for church discipline would clearly be love. And we learn that from Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12. If we don't discipline a child, we don't love the child. If we don't discipline a child of God, we don't love the child of God. Now we see this in uh, Scripture where uh, discipline has been given. And we'll look at a couple of instances, but we ought to ask the question. What if the person is enjoying their sin quite well and they don't want any help? Paul ran into that in 1 Timothy 1.20. He said he would have to deliver Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they might be taught not to blaspheme. Then Paul had to confront sin in the church in Galatians 2.14. It was Peter of all people. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, Paul said, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And another example would be Paul's putting some public pressure on Euodius and Syntyche in Philippians 4, 1 through 3. There were two ladies in the church who were having a little tiff with each other, and Paul asked for some help, even in his letter. It's been preserved until this day. So we see that sin plus Judge not, don't touch it, don't say anything about it, equals tolerance of sin. John 7.24 reminds us to judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Sin plus biblical confrontation equals true love, according to those passages, Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12. Now, what if it's so bad that you can't settle it in the church? Well, we're prohibited in 1 Corinthians 6 from taking it to a secular court. And normally, if it has to go to a secular court, that might be a sign of immaturity on the part of someone, two Christians, and maybe both. And it might be a reluctance to want to go to arbitration with a Christian mediator. There are many... Plenty of wise men, even with peacemakers' organization, that can help you to settle differences that can't be settled by the elders of the church. Now, there are instances of abuse 
or some related danger that would necessitate protection from a civil magistrate or even a law enforcement officer. So we're talking about the usual cases, and then if we have some special case, we would hope that the Lord would give the elders wisdom to be able to seek help with that. Back in the home, if mom and dad can't manage the son or daughter and there's ongoing rebellion, then they should take the young man to talk to the elders of the church. And hopefully they might be able to put the fear of God in him. I remember an instance uh, many years ago where I was a part of just such a meeting. And there was a young man in the church who I think was 13 years old. And this guy was out of control. So the elders went to talk to him and his dad in their home. That was a rather awkward situation to begin with. And his dad didn't help because he said, what do you mean when you say my son is out of control? Well, about that moment, the son went into a tantrum that you would not believe. He was bouncing off the walls. He was yelling and screaming, and we didn't have to give any further definition. And I've often thought about that, how the Lord just moved that young man to have one of his spells right at that moment. He's a grown man today. He's doing much better. But we believe that God has appointed the church to help people in the church who are having problems. Step number four public step, the last part of verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If there's no repentance, the person would be disfellowshipped from the church, from the body of believers. In this case, the church would treat the offender as we do other unbelievers not connected to the church. Friendship and familiarity might be broken, but there wouldn't be hatred toward that person. In fact, I would suggest that we should aggressively pursue that person, calling them to repentance, reminding them of the dangerous position in which they've placed themselves before step four would be implemented. That's the way to preserve the church. Other references give that same instruction about removing the one who would just be unrepentant and blatant in their ongoing sin. 1 Corinthians 5.11, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, and verses 14 and 15, and 2 John 10 and 11. The church becomes more fearful of sin. The church is protected from wrong doctrine, and the peace and purity of the church is preserved. Now this passage that's on the screen is given in the context of church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church here has uh, an ongoing sin uh, going on in the church between a man and his mother-in-law. And Paul is saying not even the Gentiles get into this sort of thing, and you've got to do something about it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If the church takes a strong biblical stand against sin, 
and yet doesn't do anything about sin in the congregation, how could we have a credible voice in the world? That's something that we have to consider and deal with because you either have to confront sin or you have to water down what the Bible has to say. And we certainly don't want to do that. So we want our walk to match our talk. And we want to be certain that we are doing things the way that Scripture tells us to do. Let's go now to, oh, family in the home, unfortunately. If a son or daughter proves to be incorrigible, that can mean a lot of things, but he or she might have to be removed from the home so that siblings wouldn't be corrupted by his behavior. If a young man is a committed rebel, committed fool, he can do a lot of damage to those around him. That would be a very serious situation and would take a lot of counsel and help from probably many people. Don't let it get that far. Now we want to consider the leadership. You can understand why elders who oversee unrepentant situations have to be above reproach. They'll be blamed by some for being too lenient. They'll be blamed by others for being too strict. They probably won't be blamed by many for being too biblical. But that is exactly what they have to be. And sometimes that is not a popular position. They have to speak the truth in love. They have to pursue the goal of restoration. And if restoration can occur, then we see from Paul in Galatians 1 and 2, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So we've presented many times the qualifications for elders. And we've talked about uh, the job of elders in the church, uh, leading and feeding and caring for and protecting the flock. Now I want to ask the question as we are closing here, what happens if the person who sins is in a leadership capacity in the church? What should happen at that point? For example, I would ask this question. What should happen if I, as the pastor, were embezzling money from the church? And the CPA who keeps our books noticed some discrepancies, and he went to Cody, and Cody looked, and sure enough, it looked like I was embezzling money. What should happen biblically at that point? Well, first thing is... We need to be sure we investigate the charges. Be sure that we're exercising caution and impartial judgment. And the reason for that is 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So Cody would check things out pretty well. And this is important. Homer Kent, in his commentary on the passage, says, No person is more subject to Satan's attack in the form of gossip and slander than God's servant. Richard Linsky adds, The honor due the office demands its protection. For even a charge of which an elder is acquitted nonetheless damages his office and work 
to some degree. So in other words, be careful with unsubstantiated charges. If there's substantial evidence, then Cody would come to me according to step one in Matthew 18. If I confessed, then Cody and I would need to go to Paul and Tom. Cody and I would be the two witnesses. And since this would involve a matter of public trust, if Cody were in doubt first, he might have a meeting with Paul and Tom. And then they would all come to me with the evidence. And then what should happen at that point? If I just quietly resign from being an elder, then I'm sure you would wonder why I resigned. And I might be tempted to tell some half-truth with regard to my resignation. Now, if you want to open your Bible to see what your Bible says, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. The King James Version says, now we're in the context of elders here, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. In some other places, this is talking about other people when it gets that far, like in Matthew 18, tell it to the church. But here we're talking about elders. Now be careful. 1 Timothy 5.20 in the American Standard Version of 1901. Them that sin reprove in the sight of all, that the rest may also be in fear. But now we're moving on to 1960 in the New American Standard Version. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest may be also fearful of sinning. Do you see any difference there? Which is correct? Should the leader's privacy be protected? If the 1960s version is correct, then all I would need to do is stop stealing the money and repent, and I'm good to go. The phrase, those who continue in sin, translates a present active participle. How should it read? Now, I want to read to you from biblical eldership Alexander Strzok. He talks about this passage. There's a difference in agreement among commentators, however, as to what is applied by this present tense participle. Some commentators believe that only those elders who stubbornly persist in sin after private warnings are to be publicly rebuked, and that repentant elders need not be publicly rebuked. This interpretation, however, misconstrues the point of the passage. A more accurate interpretation recognizes that the contrast is made between elders who are innocent, in verse 19, and elders who sin, in verse 20. The elders to be publicly rebuked are those who are found guilty of sin as proven by witnesses. The elder's disposition toward his sin is not the issue here. The issue is an elder's sin demands public exposure. Paul gives no consideration as to whether or not the elder is repentant. The present tense participle should be rendered the one who sins, not those who continue in sin. The participle describes the present guilt, which has been substantiated by witnesses. To add the condition that a one-time occurrence of sin or the sin of a repentant elder is not to be publicly rebuked is to distort Paul's instruction. The passage teaches that a proven public accusation against an elder who sinned or who is still sinning must be publicly exposed and rebuked. Here's the reason for a public disclosure to the congregation. 
I should say reasons, plural. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23, take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, delay in addressing the problem allows others to find out through rumor and gossip and slander. And that is not a good thing. To find out on the grapevine is worse, in my opinion, than having been informed by the guilty party. And the reason is this. The grapevine always embellishes things. And it either adds to the severity of something or subtracts from the severity of the sin, depending on which side you may be on. If you can get an honest statement, that removes the impression of a cover-up. A person is willing to step up and say what they have done. And others who may have known about it but didn't tell would then be implicated if it just goes on and on and nothing's said. Proverbs 28.13, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Full confession has a cleansing effect and restoration can begin. The church will become more fearful of sin. The church is protected from hypocrisy and wrong doctrine. And once again, I read one paragraph from Alexander Strzok. Paul specifically requires the guilty altar to be rebuked in the presence of all. This means public exposure before the entire congregation, not just the council of elders. The major point is that an elder's sin must be publicly exposed, not hidden or swept under the carpet. A spiritual leader's sin must be treated with great concern because it has grave ramifications. It can lead more people astray and cause the unbelieving world to mock God, the church, and the gospel. If the world sees that local churches take sin seriously, especially in the discipline of sinful leaders, then it will believe that Christians mean what they preach. Furthermore, only when the discipline of an erring church leader is made public is there any chance of controlling one of the most divisive forces in the church, rumor-mongering, gossip, and misinformation. How should the congregation proceed? The remainder of Matthew 18 deals with, guess what? Forgiveness. And it tells a lot about forgiveness. We can forgive anyone for what they have done or for what they continue to do. They may not be able to be restored in the body of Christ unless there is true repentance, but we can certainly forgive them while it's going on and we can pray for them. 1 Corinthians 5:11, excuse me, 5 and verse 1 following. Paul reprimands the church there and tells them they got to stop that sin. We mentioned that. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, Paul instructs the church as to the correct response once true repentance has occurred. And remember, it takes time to grow and ripen the fruit of true repentance. Here's what he says. Sufficient for such a one, that's the man who was punished, is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. It's a good thing to know that people would forgive you for the wrong that you have done. 
But that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, do you have the legal forgiveness that only Christ can give for being a sinner every day of your life? If you're not sure that you have that forgiveness that was purchased by the atonement of Christ through His blood, then I would invite you to examine your hearts this morning. And I would invite you to examine your heart to see if there's anything loose rumbling around down in there that could harm you and harm your family and harm the church. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, if you sense the need to get some things right with Christ, even before you would participate in the Lord's Supper, this would be the time to really examine your heart. If you sense the need to come to Christ for that legal forgiveness that only He can give, this would be the time to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are fallen creatures marred by the sin that is present in our lives. But we thank You that that damage can be restored through Jesus Christ to some extent. And one day we will be glorified and be without sin. Lord, in the meantime, help us to fight the good fight of faith for that which is true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report and virtuous and praiseworthy. Lord, we look into our hearts and we see things that ought not to be there, sometimes a fleeting thought and sometimes uh, something that we dwell upon. We pray for Your grace, even today, as we examine ourselves before the Lord's Supper. We pray that Your Spirit would turn on the light and search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us and cleanse us so that we might walk in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who's never come to You in repentance and true saving faith, that this would be the time to confess their standing as a sinner apart from Your grace and ask for forgiveness and ask for Your authority to take control in their lives and to help them be the person that You would desire them to be. Oh Lord, we ask You to guide us now as we think about this great price that You have paid so that we might be free from sin. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.